Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? I'm I'm doing great. I'm so excited about talking talking about the scriptures with you again and exploring stuff that we've never explored before together. Always, always. And uh, we are going to be exploring a couple of uh, new themes today in addition to some old ones, and I'm excited to go ahead and get started with it. Uh, But before we do, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants, section 60 through 62 today. Uh, we'll start in, uh, in section 60, and uh, just by way of introduction, we are looking at uh, what, what's going on in this section seems to be that the elders wanted to know what the Lord would have them do next after they dedicated Western Missouri as Zion and dedicated a spot for the temple as well. So section 60 is basically a response to the question, what do we do next? And uh, he seems to be pleased with the uh, trek, with the exception of those who didn't preach the gospel because of fear. And that's kind of why where I want to begin uh, this discussion with a, a conversation about verse two. I'm going to just go ahead and read that real quick. But with some, meaning the elders, I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them. Because of the fear of man, woe unto such, for mine anger is kill, is kindled against them. So um, for me, I learned this verse as a missionary uh, out preaching the gospel in South Africa, and I learned it pretty viscerally. There were times where I was uh, super self-conscious about the work that I was called to do and my ability to do it, and how different and weird it was to just go up to random people on the street or at their homes and strike up a conversation about Jesus and the restored gospel in public places. I got, I did get over myself eventually, but I remember kind of the one instance in particular that kept me from having any more troubles. I was uh, prompted three times by the spirit to, uh, to speak to a man. And I ignored the prompting every single time even though it was getting stronger each time. This was on a P day. We were at a mall. I was not in missionary mode at all, even though I probably should have been, you know, always a missionary when you're on a mission. And uh, I'll tell you, Derek, I've had golden investigators drop me and I had a companion that I really didn't get along with, but I don't think I've ever felt as, as low as I did that particular mm. day because the Lord's rebuke was that, I didn't understand the atonement. And wow. you know, that yeah, that hit me really hard, bro. Like I, I let my discomfort get in the way of someone else hearing the gospel, someone else's opportunity to partake of the atonement as I did. I clearly didn't get it, even though, you know, sharing the message of it was the whole reason I was out there. So like I that's why I felt so bad, I think. Now I know that none of us truly understand the atonement. There is a simplicity to it that lets us partake of it and appreciate it, but there's also a complexity to it that keeps us asking, you know, the same question that Enos asked, Lord, how is it done? Uh, The point, though, is I believe the Lord's anger was kindled against those elders because they had been called as elders. You know, people with the responsibility to witness of Christ and share the good news of his gospel and the atonement, and they didn't live into that calling. And yeah. in not living into that calling, they failed to extend uh, the blessings of the atonement that they were partaking of, because they were more they were more scared of men like them than they were scared of, uh, you know, the Christ with power to redeem all men. You know, so I get that. If I was Jesus, I'd be mad too. I'd be like, I gave you the calling. I gave you the tools. I gave you the blessings that you're called to extend to others through me or that I'm extending through you. Right. The most important blessings humankind will ever receive. And you don't follow through because you're scared. 
Like, come on, elders. Come on now. We we got a Zion to build. This is a young church. We got work to do. I gave y'all the power. I gave y'all the means. Y'all have tasted the blessing and y'all can't open your mouths. Like how many times have we read condemnations of uh, of um, sins of omission throughout the scriptures? Like I, I, I heard you, Derek, quote the common English translation of Leviticus 19 verse 16 at least twice on this show. It still rings in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't stand idly by while your neighbor's blood is shed is what the verse says. Uh, James 417. That is my email signature. Uh, who, oh gosh, this is a bad look. I can't remember. Um, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. That's what it says. Mm -hmm. And then Alma 60, literally a 30 some verse that is, that is a scathing rebuke of Pahoran for a sin of omission. The Lord is displeased with the brethren because they had the power, the resources, the knowledge to grant folks the greatest gift they could ever get as the Lord commanded them, and they didn't do it. That was their sin of omission. That yeah. is why the Lord is angry. And, you know, I hear that verse, I hear these verses a little bit different now than I did as a missionary. I still hear them in the same way, but, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, justice and reconciliation work, there is more to consider here. Like uh, what I hear over a decade later since completing my mission, I hear a condemnation of Paul if he wouldn't have stood up to Peter. I hear a condemnation of Esther if she didn't heed Mordecai. I hear a uh, um, I hear a condemnation of the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I I, I hear a strong critique of um of religious passivity, which I can understand would anger the Lord. Paul, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, he could not let uh, the bigotry of Peter slide, even if he was the prophet of the church. Esther could not ignore the plight of the Jews brought to her attention by her cousin Mordecai, even if it could cost her her life. The priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they should have known better than to leave the man on the side of the road as a result of their very religion and their status in that religion but they didn't act in accordance with it. There is a justice component to what the Lord is asking the elders to do because in their refusing to open their mouths, they are denying, they are not helping to fulfill. They are not being tools in the very mission that Christ had explained in Mm -hmm. Isaiah, the one that he explained in Luke, the very reason he said he was coming here to loose the bands, to break the yokes, to let the oppressed go free. This is an injustice. And there has to be somebody who is ready to do that work of justice and preaching that gospel, or more specifically, using the gospel as a tool of transformative justice for those who would be liberated from homophobia, from racism, from misogyny and ableism. That, Mm -hmm. I believe, is what the Lord is speaking specifically into as well with his condemnation of the elders who do not want to open their mouths, even though they have the tools and the means to do so. What do, you, what do you think about this? Yeah, this reminds me a lot of the prophet Jonah, who was called to go Ooh. to Nineveh. Yes. And he's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Mm-mm, nope, he didn't go. And it was because he was selfish. He wanted grace all to himself. He did not yep. want to share it with the outsiders, with the with the foreigners, the strangers, the historic enemies yep. of the people of Israel. Yep. Greedy Jonah. And, like, why did he want to all for himself in fact he was angry at god he was like mad at god for saying well i knew you're you're slow to anger and gracious and forgiving i knew that if i had gone to the ninevites they would have repented mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then god is like why wouldn't you think that i'm going to care about all my children mm-hmm. and i think that's the attitude we have to have is to realize that grace extends a Cross difference, and we should be bold in including others that we're afraid of including. Mm-hmm. These dudes, they really be on some stuff, man. They really be on some stuff. Um, but yeah, that that's basically all I think I need to say about that was just, 
I, I, I wanted to understand why the Lord was angry in particular and just see what other components to that anger there were. And also just to say that anger is a valid emotion if Christ can feel it. I often hear people talk about how anger is a sin or weaponize or speak ill of the anger that people on the margins feel because if they are speaking in an angry tone or if they feel anger, then they must be doing something wrong. And uh, I, I feel like even though we've addressed this in the past, I feel like it's worth addressing now that anger is not a negative emotion. I'm not going to say it's a positive emotion either. I would definitely say it's a neutral emotion when that can be channeled for good or bad things. One that can be like Martin Luther King Jr. He was angry. Jesus Christ was angry on more than one occasion. Um, and, you know, often those who are victims of injustice are rightfully angry. It's okay to be angry at the right stuff. And it's okay to channel that anger into, you know, positive things like the work for justice. But I just want to make sure that people understand and people see that Jesus Christ was angry here because his very elders, the people he had called to deliver his message of the gospel, um, had turned themselves away from that work. He was angry because the people he called were not acting appropriately as his tools of justice, as his tools of the dispersion of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So there are such things as valid anger. Uh, it's a valid emotion. And I uh, just wanted to make sure that was out there. Right. I think anger is a symptom or an expression of your values being violated. Oh, absolutely. And I think that is something to keep in mind when we when we get angry ourselves or when we hear someone else get angry, instead of policing their tone and saying, "Oh, you're getting angry." We should think about, "Well, what is what of which values of mine are being violated right now or which values yeah. of theirs yeah. are being violated?" And that can help build empathy and understanding for ourselves or others. Yeah, absolutely. And the kind of footnote to this that I want to read, because I feel like this verse is important as well. This is verse three, the very next verse. Oh my gosh. And I just inadvertently closed my app. Okay. So it reads, and it shall come to pass, if they are not more faithful unto me, it shall be taken away even that which they have. Now, what exactly is it that they have. They have the truth of the gospel. They have truth, period. And they have something that they are not living in accordance with, accordance with and they are losing it. Now, you know what this made me think of, Derek? Mm -hmm. Because this, this infographic, I think, came out last week, and we decided we didn't want to talk about it. But um, And I don't want to spend any great length of time talking about it today. But have you seen this infographic floating around of the percentage of people of different religions that bought into... Uh, that bought into the uh, stolen election claims from this past uh, from this past year. Yeah, I saw that. Forty six percent of Mormons, forty six percent, bought into that. Mormons and that tells in the me US, a couple of right? things. Yeah, Mormons in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Mormons in the U.S. So um, that tells me a couple of things. But I don't know exactly, and I didn't parse why my mind went exactly there. But what I see happening is when people don't live according to the truth that they have, specifically the truth of the gospel, then they lose it to the point where they are willing to believe things that are not true, believe things that validate the more errant parts of their identity, and they lose that truth to the point where they fall into dangerous paths, where they fall into condemnation, where they fall into dark paths. I see people who are not willing to speak to injustice, people who are not willing to share the gospel despite being given the tools, despite being given a taste of the gospel themselves, the people who have tasted of the fruit and do not bid others to also come into the tree. I see these folks uh, as ones being from whom that truth will be taken away. I don't know how other people read this, but when they say, but when the Lord says, it shall be taken away that which they have. I view that as truth. And there's a consequence of losing that truth, namely falling into dark paths, uh, like the people who tasted the fruit and were ashamed, 
or like people who aren't exactly the most active in uh, racial justice or reconciliation work believing white supremacist rhetoric in our church. So, yeah, man. Yeah, I, I just wanted to put that out there. It's tough because when we think about our missionary work, we want to put our best foot forward. But there's a real problem when we when you get this data that comes out and a whole bunch of U.S. Mormons are against the vaccine or hesitant about it or a whole bunch of U.S. Mormons think of the election was stolen mm-hmm. from a rightful Trump. The problem with this is the rest of the world... We're supposed to be an inbreaking of the kingdom of God, a foothold of what Zion yes, should sir. be like. And what we're yes, basically sir. saying is that if the gospel s- succeeds and spreads across the world, this is what the world is going to look like. I don't want the world to mm-hmm. look like that. The whole mm-hmm. world is going to look like like this mess where we have up to half of U.S. Mormons. Are, I can't even remember what it was. But is that really what we want the world to look like? Right. A whole bunch of people so separated from the facts and decency. Like, that's not what I want the world to look like. You know, do I really want the entire world to be Mormon? Well, I I read news <laughs> like that. I'm like, no, I don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I wish. And I this gets back to something in the scriptures is if you look at the prophets and their message to the children of Israel or Paul and his message to all the churches. Like he's upset. Paul's upset with the churches. The prophets are upset Mm -hmm. with the people of God. Like there's a whole bunch to criticize. And so when, when people say, Oh, how can you criticize the church? I mean, that's half of our scriptures is criticism (laughs) of the people of God and what they're doing and what they're not doing and what their leadership is in the scriptures. Yes, sir. There's nothing more biblical than criticizing the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's look at uh, verse 5, because this idea of burying your talents is connected here with some of the the language around responsibility and initiative. So here's what it says in I... verse 5. And just to remind people about our context— This is a declaration to Joseph and his company that they need to go by watercraft along the Missouri from Independence to St. Louis and then from St. Louis up to Cincinnati and then Kirtland, right? So this is, that's the context here. And here's what the Lord says in verse 5 of section 60. Let there be a craft made or bought as seemeth you good. It mattereth not unto me, and take your journey speedily for the place which is called St. Louis. So notice something interesting. God doesn't specify whether the craft needs to be made or bought. It's mm-hmm. as seemeth you good. Like, we get to decide. Right. Joseph and his company, they get to decide. It matters not unto God. And what's interesting is that our faith leaves a lot of room for delegated powers. There's so much that God has left for us to finish, for us to figure out, for us to complete. And this is echoed by the hiding of the talent language that you pointed out in verse 2. Because in the Matthew 25 parable, it's significant that the landowner goes off and leaves the servants completely on their own, hands Mm -hmm. off, with no instructions what to do with the talents that they were given. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, possibly more than any other denomination that I know of, has the most expansive and the most solid view of human agency, initiative, and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Basically what I'm saying Mm -hmm. is, in our denomination, God hands over more keys to us. Mm -hmm. Um, Like literally the keys of the car. Here, you drive it now. That's Mm -hmm. really what, what our church does perhaps more than any other denomination. Our scriptures often put things in our hands. Often the Mm -hmm. Lord delegates important things to us, and eventually eventually we are destined to learn to become celestial adults like God with the wisdom to step up and make big decisions. We are Mm -hmm. given the room to practice making these decisions here in the apprenticeship that we call mortality. 
Our creation narratives emphasize that God has shared dominion with us and delegated to us many decisions. Mm -hmm. And here's something that people, a lot of people don't notice. In Genesis 2, God creates the animals, but God doesn't name them. Isn't that interesting? You would think, well, God's in charge, right? But Adam names the animals. God completely left that part totally up to Adam. In fact, bringing them to Adam to see what he would name them. Adam, by the way, is the Hebrew word for humanity. It's gender-neutral humanity. And Mm. so this lesson here isn't just given to men. This power, this delegated authority isn't just given to males. People of all genders can see themselves in Adam. And so part of being human is that God has delegated these powers to us, the powers of categorizing, labeling, and classifying. And here's Mm. where the LGBT movement comes in. Like we have created and labeled a number of orientations, a number of identities, Mm. uh, even different categories of orientation. We've got sexual orientation, we've got romantic orientation, we've got friendship orientation, we've got all of these categories. And I saw this thing online the other day, and it said, yes, there are 64 genders, and every time you complain about it, we're adding five more. (laughs) Right? I mean, God's world is so diverse. We can't even begin to capture language that encapsulates the marvelous diversity, right? We're we're struggling to come up with words for what God has created. And people that say there's only mm-hmm. two genders, I'm I'm like, that's like saying there's only two people, right? Mm-hmm. There's only well, anyway, my point is that we as humans have been given the power to name creation, to name the diversity of creation. And so why am I being criticized for naming the diversity of creation when that is fundamentally who we are as humans? Mm. Right? Like, right. And some of these things, yes, they are culturally and socially constructed. Some of these words are made up, but you know what? Every word is made up. Um, <laughs> except for onomatopoeia, which has some degree of correspondence between the thing and the sound it makes, every word is made up. Like, literally, every mm-hmm. word has an arbitrary made-up meaning. And so when you accuse us of making up words, well, I'm like, yeah, all of our words are made up. But my, oh, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm talking about something I'm excited about, which means I'm going off of my notes. But my point <laughs> good, is, man. my ultimate point is, we get to decide. Like God has delegated us these powers, just like they got to determine whether they're going to make or buy the watercraft, as seemeth it as seemeth you good. It says, we also have the power to name our experience, to name creation, and to, to name our orientation, and say, look, this is valid. Here's my agen- gender identity. It's valid. Here are my pronouns. They're valid. Here is my orientation. Like that is valid. Mm-hmm. And I like what it says here uh, in verse 5, let there be a craft made or bought as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me again. I think this text makes room for generous orthodoxy. Part of the problem mm-hmm. is that straight folks are presented with a covenant path, and I talked about this last time. Straight folks are presented with a covenant path, and gay folks are presented with a covenant treadmill. Nothing we do gets us anywhere. We do the same amount of walking but we're not allowed to go anywhere due to the structures in place around us. Mm-hmm. But for me, people wonder, Derek, how do you do it? Well, I have wings. I have wings that they don't know about. I can fly with the heavy treadmill tied around my neck. I have been blessed with a great deal of resilience and resource that allows me to soar no matter how many millstones people in my own church tie around my neck. As the prophet Isaiah said, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And part of the resource that I do have that allows me to survive the discrimination that's been inflicted upon my people within this church is that I have the power to name things. I can name my orientation. 
I can name the fact that some of these things don't matter to God. It's up to mm-hmm. us to name what's right for us. And this is connected later with uh, verse 22. Oh, wait, that's in DNC 61. We'll get there. Are we ready to go to 61? Not quite. Not okay. quite. Um, I just wanted to uh, first, you know, add my witness to what you're saying, um, you know, just about, you know, this power that to be able to name things. This is one of the things that uh, the Lord has given to us. And I also just wanted to, you know, name the pattern that is present in all these verses where the Lord has let us know that we can do things that seemeth us good and it doesn't matter to him. Um, like in verse, uh, I, I guess it's in verse, like in section 60, the Lord doesn't seem to care what means are taken as long as the end, uh, mm-hmm. of getting to St. Louis is accomplished and done so speedily. Uh, in 61, the Lord told Joseph, like in verse 22, that where we're going to be going to shortly, that it doesn't matter if it's so be that they fill their mission, you know, whether they go by water or by land. And then in 62, just after that part that you finished reading, he says, It mattereth not unto me, only be faithful and declare glad tidings unto Mm -hmm. the inhabitants of the earth or among the congregations of the wicked. There's a lack of interest on the Lord's part in how a task gets done so, so, so long as the elders are faithful, so long as they preach the gospel. And we saw that when we uh, discussed... When we discussed section 27 several weeks ago, there's just that pattern of the Lord not having a strong opinion on the means we use to a specific end. Uh, But all those passages do have a conditional phrase, and I think that gives us a hint as to what actually does matter to the Lord. And he basically is saying, only be faithful, or if it so be, like, He's saying, I don't care how you get it done as long as these conditions of faithfulness are met, you know? So I I think we need to take special care to note, you know, these things that do matter to the Lord and the things that don't matter to the Lord. And obviously I I, want to make sure that uh, LGBTQ folks are given this freedom to say that the orientation, you know, or how you express that. Like what matters to the Lord is not so much. Okay, I, I, I'm I'm actually going to try to stay in my lane here because you actually already mm-hmm. spoke to this pretty beautifully, but I just wanted to say that all that matters to the Lord seems to be our faithfulness to His to His word, and mm-hmm. obviously we have different ideas about what exactly that is, which is how a lot of the homophobes validate their attacks on LGBTQ folks. But I would simply ask. If there is a way, if there is a, okay, hold up. Let me rephrase this. Okay. The, the, what it actually says in, uh, verse two of section 27, I really liked it's, it says, it doesn't matter what you shall eat or drink. And I could sub this for, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your orientation is. If it so be, this is the rest of the verse. If it so be that you do it with an eye single to my glory. Right. And I think that's the uh, key piece there. If we can live into our authentic expressions of our gender identity, our sexual identity, our racial identity, whatever other identity, and still have an eye single to the glory of God, I believe we're okay. And rant. And uh, before we get into sixty into sixty one, I do want to uh, talk about verse fifteen real quick. This is uh, the dusting off of the feet. I'm just going to go ahead and read verse fifteen real quick. Shake off the dust of thy feet against those who receive thee not, not in their presence, lest thou provoke them, but in secret, and wash thy feet as a testimony against them in the day of judgment. Now, this ordinance of washing off the feet, dusting off the feet, this isn't something we do today. And uh, as we're going to see in the section 61 and in the Come Follow Me manual discussing it, a lot of what we're reading in these in these uh, sections is uh, actually pretty situational. And I want to make sure that's understood before diving into this verse. 
Now, in this particular verse, we're addressing people that the elders attempt to share the gospel with who refuse that message. I suspect that uh, Parley Pratt's rather brazen gesture with the shakers uh, several weeks ago, that that may have had something to do with the Lord's inclusion of these words. If you, if you don't remember or if you're not familiar uh, when we were discussing the mission to the Shakers a little bit ago, the elders attempted to share the gospel with them, and they refused it. And as a testimony against them, Parley Parker Pratt took off his coat and shook it before the congregation as a testimony against them. And uh, the leader of the Shakers didn't particularly appreciate that. I don't remember what his words were back to Parley, but he was, but you know, he wasn't happy. That much I do remember. And I think that's why the Lord is instructing them to do it in secret, so as not to provoke them in this particular instance. But I do think there is something to be said of what Parley Pratt did. But I see it as something that's more appropriate for those uh, leaving the church spaces. And I'll tell you what I mean in a second, because there is a bit of a caveat here. Now, I want to put it out here and acknowledge that I've been very critical of uh, certain kinds of people who loudly announce their departure from the church, particularly over social issues that uh, that don't directly affect them, while others who are directly affected by those social issues like us, we remain in full fellowship. I, I really don't like it when the privileged use the plight of the marginalized as a reason to distance themselves from the church without naming their privilege while people like us are still here and trying to make this a more hospitable place for all. If you're going to name us in your departure, it is my opinion that you should also name that we're still here mm-hmm. and that our presence here is just as valid as your departure, your decision to leave. Like, I get that you don't want to be associated with bigotry, but you also got a name that you don't have the bandwidth nor the desire to do anything about that bigotry because too often these departures read and they sound like that there's no reason a logical person or a good person would be part Mm -hmm. of this church. It smacks of that same energy from when uh, John DeLynn said a while ago, that he didn't understand how any intelligent black person could be a part of the church. And oh, obviously that, that's, that hurt my feel. I, is that wrong if it hurts my feelings when I heard heard that? No, it's not wrong. No, it's not wrong. But like, obviously, that's pretty racist. And, you know, I'll give John DeLynn credit. He did apologize for that statement. Um, but, it, but what I I don't think what I'm about to say is for those people, the people with privilege who are leaving because of people on the margins and not naming their privilege as they do so. Mm. What I'm about to say is rather for those on the margins and those directly affected by bigoted policies and uh, and norms. So uh, I think there's something to be said for shaking off the dust of your feet as a testimony against those who rejected you and also as a warning to others, and also as a way to dignify and honor those who reject us. Um, I've seen movements outside of our faith, notably the hashtag leave loud movement among black Christians and white churches, where uh, where black folks are leaving the predominantly white spaces they occupy in a manner that draws attention to their exodus, that others might be warned, and that the church might be put on notice and ashamed. I've said this on the show recently. I do think there is a place for shame in uh, conversations, well, in these kinds of conversations. But, you know, I think to myself, when someone leaves, I, I need the church to understand, when someone leaves the church, when a person who is part of the LGBTQ community, when a woman leaves, when somebody who is black leaves, does it cause introspection? Or, you know, is it good riddance? Like, what does it mean when somebody leaves the church? And do you know what is happening when somebody leaves the church? Is there any kind of change or introspection happening when somebody leaves the church? That is why I think there's merit to uh, leaving loud or, you know, shaking off the dust of your feet in a not so secret way, because that means you had chances, probably ample chances prior to someone leaving where you could have intervened in a positive way, where you could have listened, Mm. where you could have changed, where you could have acted. And because you did it for so long, like most of the folks I know that have, that have uh, left, have endured, they have been long suffering. And, And this leaving is a long time coming because they gave it everything they had and they still weren't listened to. So, so now when these folks leave, 
churches, denominations, they ought to be ashamed that, that, that Jesus-loving folks, good, committed, and faithful believers didn't feel like there was space for them because they were black, because they were LGBTQ, because they were women or disabled or any other variety of identities. I like this idea of shaking off the dust of your feet in a not-so-secret way as a testimony against these church spaces who have not made this environment a hospitable place uh, for folks. Like there is precedent uh, for such action. So like, I, I kind of want to put this out there as a way of acknowledging people who feel the need to uh, publicize their leaving of the church under those particular circumstances. I think there's something to be said because people need to understand and we need to hear these stories so that we can look at ourselves and consider what kind of environments we are creating for people who don't feel safe here. So, uh, yeah, a um, little bit of a different thing. I didn't think I would be talking about the good, the proper ways to leave the church today. But I do think there that if somebody does feel the need, someone on the margins feels the need to uh, leave the church for their own spiritual, emotional, and mental welfare, that. Um, I, I validate shaking off the dust of your feet in a public manner so that others might be warned and set the, and so that the church might be ashamed. Yeah, thank you so much for that. It, it's really tough because my instinct is to want to be as inclusive of, as possible and say everyone who who can stay in the church, I would like to stay in the church. I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. I. I I really don't want to encourage people to leave. I get that some people do leave, right? And they have the uh -huh. agency to leave. But there's a sense in which those who are able to stay um, are the key to the vitality of the future church. We are the future of the church. Yeah. yeah. Like It's the people on the margins who end up knowing what's going on, right? We're we're the, we're the best hope that the church has, and so I don't mm -hmm. want us to leave. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is true that this uh, this ordinance encapsulates the fact that being rejected, being unwelcome, is something to be to be named and to be pointed out. Absolutely, and it's something to yes. be marked. And I yes. think that maybe yes. I should bring in this foot dusting off the uh, feet ritual when I get rejected by people because I'm queer. Like, yeah, I'm going to, mm -hmm. I'm going to mark this and say, look, the Lord has made provision for us to name when we've been rejected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to go on to section 61 yeah, let's go to 661. And some real quick notes about the historical context is that in section 60, the Lord instructed the folks to go down uh, down the Missouri River, right, to, to St. Louis and then up to Ohio. But then in 61, God is goes, oh, just kidding. And here's the framing behind that. Uh, verse 22 says... And it mattereth not unto me. Here we get that whole, it mattereth not again. It mattereth not unto me after little, if it so be that they fill their mission, whether they go by water or by land. Let this be as it is made known unto them according to their judgments hereafter, right? So now he's delegating again this decision of you've got to make the judgment call. Do you want, you don't have to go by water. I know I said you should go by water, but now that you've seen how dangerous the Missouri River is, and this is where the Revelations in Context book was really helpful to talk about this switcheroo that God does on them and says, well, well now you can now you see how bad the, the Missouri River is and all these these uh log jams and all the these sandbars and the mess that's in the Missouri River is so difficult to navigate that well you don't have to go by land, right? If it's too hard, you don't have to do it. You get the judgment. And this is an example of God giving revelatory updates. 
and it's in response to Joseph seeking wisdom. After the Missouri River proved very dangerous, Joseph sought wisdom, and he received this particular revelation that literally changed their course. And what we learn from this is that some details that we thought were revelation and direction from God, such as the journey to the instruction to journey by water, in the end, aren't actually that important to God. They thought God wanted them to travel by water, and then after that didn't work very well, they learned, after all, that it mattereth not to God, whether it was by land or by water. And I think the same thing is true of gender and orientation right now. Many people right now think it is important that everyone must marry someone of a different gender. <laughs> that it has to be male and female. Does it really have to be male and female? Like, where are you getting that? Are you getting that mm-hmm. from some instinctive bias that you inherited from the surrounding culture? Or are you getting it from a direct and express word of God that has been canonized that clearly speaks to the reality of same-gender oriented people? Like, we don't have anything like that in our canon. Mm Mm-hmm. Make it make sense. And that's why we're learning that it mattereth not to God. Some people still think it's important to marry someone of the same gender, but it really mattereth not to God, and we're learning that. Male and female, all are alike unto God, as it says in 2 Nephi 26, 33. One day mm-hmm. we as a church will get the courage to actually believe this. And I love how um, this idea of God changing policy or even changing our understanding of doctrine is key to being a restored and restoring church that we believe that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Mm. So from time to time, there are changes in our course that might be unexpected. One recent case is the change to end the practice of time-only civil marriages in the temple. You heard about this, right, this week? Yeah, I did. I did. So until this week, two individuals who were each sealed to a spouse who was is now deceased could be married for time only in a temple ceremony. What are your thoughts about this change? I don't have a lot of thoughts. Like I actually, I mean, because I don't know a lot of people who were, you know, widowed who tried to have this experience, um, I didn't even know that this was a thing if I'm being completely honest. So like to hear that it was just kind of, uh, you know, caught me off guard a little bit. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure how to feel about it. If I'm being honest, Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm still partial. I'm still, I'm still kind of processing this. Right. And I think it's rooted in this idea that at, at this time, women, living women cannot be sealed to two men at the same time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if a man's wife dies and he's sealed to the first wife, he can be sealed to a second wife in in life as long as this second wife is not sealed to anyone else, right? So there's essentially celestial right. polygamy. A man can be sealed to two women, and that, that works for them. But what happens if the man and the woman both are uh, sealed to someone else and their and their first spouse has died and they want to marry each other. That's exactly what this is uh, policy was made for. Mm-hmm. Now, people in that situation still can get a civil marriage. It just won't be in the temple. So that's the change. This time-only gotcha. marriage is no longer permitted in the temple, but it is still permitted elsewhere. And let's talk about some of these implications, because as theologians, we need to think about, well, what does this mean? Like, how does does our practice, how is our practice informed by the Word of God? And how does the Word of God inform our practice? And so here's some things that I thought of. Number, uh, first of all, sometimes changes can seem arbitrary or unprompted not in response to any need for change like i can't i don't know of any activists who are calling for this change i don't know of any changes in society or in the world that there's any new thing that that people needed to respond to right mm-hmm. it just all of a sudden they change this 
And yeah. changes like this, even if it's just about policy, will cause people to ask, well, if this is the right thing to do now, what about last week? What was different last week? You know, was the old way right? And now this is like, yeah, what what does this all mean? And so this causes people to think that, you know, some of this actually is arbitrary, just like the these it mattereth not things. Like some of that is up to us. We've got the delegated power. And at this point, church leadership said, well, you know, now we're going to change it, even though nothing on the ground has changed. There's uh, there's nothing that made this policy of time-only marriage, it makes sense before, and now it doesn't make sense anymore, right? Nothing specific changed in the world that this needs to react to. So mm-hmm. this brings up a lot of questions around, like, how much authority do we have as as people of God? And I think we have a lot more than we think we do. Yeah. And this gets yeah. to my second point. This change helps to solidify the difference in people's minds between civil marriage and temple marriage. Because now that we're not doing time-only marriages in the temple, you've got more of a separation of, oh, the temple is just for sealing. It is just for sealing, right? And then civil marriage is something else that in the United States happens to overlap and maybe so, maybe in other countries. Mm-hmm. And... This brings the United another blessing of this change is that it brings the United States into alignment with other countries where religious marriages do not count as civil marriages. And in these countries, two ceremonies are required, one for the state and then one for the church or religious organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, then this is something interesting is that by separating temple marriage, Uh, By separating sealing and uh, civil marriage, it helps to bring marriage into alignment with our approach to adoption and parent-child sealings. Because obviously, uh, well, it's not obvious. Adopted children can be sealed to their adoptive parents. I don't know if people know this, but if you adopt a child and you want to be sealed to your adopted child, you can. Mm Mm-hmm. And those are separate things. Like adoption is this legal thing that's not done by the church. It's done by the, at least in the United States, the secular government. But then you can go on and have this religious ceiling that is on a separate track. And I think by separating civil marriage and the temple the way they've done is uh, it, it helps to bring marriage into alignment with uh, the the fact that they're separate things for adoption and parent-child sealing. And the other thing about this adoption is that our approach to adoption and sealing helps to destabilize the idea that families are necessarily natural or biological. Like there's this whole mm-hmm. natural biological paradigm that people are swimming in the church and they haven't really thought about it analytically. But... Adoption is one of the most unnatural ways of building a family, if you think about it. It literally is unnatural. And I don't mean that in a, as a pejorative or dismissive way. Mm-hmm. I mean it in a good way. You know, I'm gay. I love unnatural, right? That's what, <laughs> that's what we're all about. Um, but I'm here to say that same-gender marriage is no more unnatural than adoption. And you should people should make a bar out of that. Same-gender marriage is no more unnatural than adoption. And finally, the fact that we allow time-only marriage at all is a bold witness to the fact that there are other purposes to marriage other than exaltation or other than procreation in this life or the next. People who are married for time only, especially older widows and widowers who will not be having children together, are being married for companionship, for mutual support, for physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy. They will not procreate together in the next life. They will not be exalted together in the next life. By definition, this is a time-only marriage. What does it mean? What is the, what is the purpose of that marriage? Mm-hmm. 
they don't need this time-only marriage for exaltation or procreation or any of the other excuses that straight supremacists give mm-hmm. as the essential purpose of marriage. Have you? Mm-hmm. You, just, you can count on three fingers when people ask what the purpose of marriage is, and especially in the context of like, well, gays can't get married because it doesn't fulfill the purpose of marriage. Well, like, what is that purpose? Name it. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll realize that they don't know what they're talking about. They're not consistent. Mm-hmm. They're not coherent. They're just mm-hmm. making stuff up along the way. They haven't thought through these things the way that we have had to think through them. Mm-hmm. So if anyone talks about the, per- the quote, the purpose of marriage without centering the acceptability of time-only marriages, which we clearly do, we've always accepted time-only marriages. Right. If they talk about the purpose of marriage without talking about the acceptability of time-only marriages, they have betrayed the gospel of Christ with their hypocrisy. Ooh. And the thing about homophobia is that it's people people want to just narrow it into like an internal feeling. But the thing is homophobia isn't a feeling, it's a disparity. It's a mm-hmm. disparity of access. It is discrimination against individuals and categories. It is a segregation, right? The fact that uh-huh. straight couples can do stuff that gay couples can't, that's homophobia. I mean, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. what you if, – if that's what you're supporting, then you're supporting homophobia. Now, mm-hmm. I should probably think about this, and maybe we should move away from language of homophobe and homophobia because – of that very reason, because people it may not accurately describe what it is we're talking about. We're talking about the discrimination. We're talking about the structural and systemic disparities. It doesn't matter if you personally are disgusted by gays or not. I mean, I'm I'm probably disgusted by some gays myself, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but my point is that folk. That's why I use the word straight supremacy, which sounds much more bold but it's actually just neutral it's descri- it's describing if you think that straight mm-hmm. folks and straight families should have a superior place in society or in the church that's straight supremacy same thing with uh, our our trans siblings right trans siblings have a, have to deal with a lot of discrimination in our church mm-hmm. and that needs to be named too and so back to this policy change that I hope this pol- that policy changes like this one give us the opportunity to lean into uncertainty, to lean into the fact that we we don't know everything. We don't know what could change. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know uh, what what the reasons are behind it. What it was like, I don't actually know the reasons why we allowed time only ceilings. Uh, I mean, time only marriages in the temple. I don't know why we did that, other than just to be a convenient place for folks who wanted to get married a- in a nice place, right? Is that mm-hmm. that that must be all it was? Mm-hmm. And um, I should say that this change does not mean that we're not doing time-only marriages anymore. It's just that they have to be done in a secular venue, uh, not the temple, right? They can be done outside the temple by your bishop, by your justice of the peace, anyone. So we still support time-only marriages. It's just not uh, in harmony with what is now seen as the eternal nature and purpose of the temple. Mm-hmm. But I want us to lean into this uncertainty and trust that God can still speak and that God can still surprise us. Mm-hmm. And I have some things I wanted to say about section 62 real quick. So right. this is interesting. It's kind of a sequel to 61. So now they are they're walking on their way and towards St. Louis and Joseph and his party meet elders who are journeying the other way towards independence. And the fact that they're going in opposite directions and Joseph says, yeah, you, you should just keep on going to Zion. We're going to keep going this way. The fact that it was okay for them to take different paths, this symbolizes the fact that the covenant path looks different for everyone. And it looks different for people at different times. Mm-hmm. And here we again, we get the theme of it mattereth not, this time in verse 5. So in all three of these sections, we get this it mattereth not. Verse 5 says, and then you may return to bear record 
yea, even altogether, or two by two, as seemeth you good, it mattereth not unto me. Only be faithful and declare glad tidings. And you already uh, cited this earlier. Uh, and declare glad tidings unto the inhabitants of the earth or among the congregations of the wicked. Mm-hmm. And so in our generation, we notice a lot of anxiety, a lot of, of thought around sealing and marriage and singleness and gender and family and so forth. All of these words have a lot of weight in our culture. And people are worried like, oh no, if I'm not sealed, am I going to see my grandma ever again? Oh no, if I'm not married, what is my standing in this community? Oh no, if my gender doesn't conform to what it was assigned at birth, like what is what place is there for me? Like what is the place of a single person in the church? And here's what Paul says about this. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A lot of these old categories are going to be uh, completely swallowed up in in Christ. Mm-hmm. Many of these many of these categories will become irrelevant in Christ. The point is to be transformed into your best self, your fullest potential. It's not to be conformed to some other ideal or some other person. Here's what Galatians six fifteen says: For in Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. This is another example of it mattereth not to God. And this is something that really mattered to people. There is a lot of mess around this in the book of, of course, Acts and also in Galatians, uh, exactly why I'm quoting from this, about circumcision. And it mattereth to a lot of people, but it mattereth not to God. Um mm-hmm. And, inter- and so this is this is my translation of the Greek of, of Galatians 6.15 for uh neither circumcision is anything nor foreskin but a new creation and, and I, I like that t estin which is it, it is something or it is it, it is anything so it's and this is what's rejected for it is not the case that circumcision or uncircumcision is anything or is something mm-hmm. but what really matters is the transformation to becoming a new creature. And we in the church may get to the point where we can say on the analogy of this verse that neither sealing nor unsealing avails anything. That that neither uh, parenthood nor unparenthood does anything. And that neither marriage nor unmarriage does anything. Every believer under this framework, would be given access and opportunity to get what they need to become a new creation in Christ. Circumcision and uncircumcision is irrelevant in Christ today, even though circumcision was once a strict commandment from the Lord. You can see this in in Genesis 17, for example. And I love that this logic is anticipated in Galatians 3, verses 27 and 28. For as many of you has, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye mm-hmm. are all one in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. It mattereth not to God. Mm-hmm. Like there should not be mm-hmm. any discrimination based on gender in the church of Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ if all those who have put on Christ are neither male nor female. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyone who's been baptized into Christ, we're all one in Christ. For ye are all one in in Christ Jesus is how it ends in Galatians Mm 3.28. I mean, it can't be any clearer than that. I think this gets back to the point of when... When does something matter to God and when does something not matter to God? And I think that's where you have to have some type of framework that you bring to the text because otherwise it's you're not how do you know if something matters or not? And I think it ends up going back to Christ being the focus and love is the focus. Like what is loving? What is Christ like? What promotes peace and justice and harmony? That's really what matters. Some of these other things if it's not a love issue, if it's not if it's not incompatible with Christ, then it's 
then it doesn't matter to God. That's how we know the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. And so we've got this phrase of it mattereth not in all three of these sections. And some people are going to tell me, I can already anticipate this. Some people are going to say that I'm stretching the meaning of it mattereth not because I'm <laughs> stretching it to include orientation and, and gender identity. Mm-hmm. And if people are going to tell me that I'm stretching this beyond what section 60, 61, and 62 are doing, well, I'm going to say, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I am likening the scriptures unto myself. I'm tracing out the trajectory of inclusion in scripture. I am following the spirit wherever it leads. I'm leaning into the uncertainty that we have about uh, when this change will happen. Now, I'm certain, of course, that this change will happen. I don't know when, but I'm leaning unto the uncertainty of how and when it will change. I'm depending on Christ to set the oppressed free as he identified his mission to be in Luke 4, which you quoted earlier. And I'm Mm -hmm. holding us accountable to God's principles of love and justice, even when our textual tradition hasn't yet caught up with it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if people say I'm stretching the meaning of of it mattereth not, yes, I am. And that is exactly what Christ (laughs) did. That's exactly what Paul did. That's what exactly the prophets did is they took what they were given and worked with it and and Mm -hmm. infused it with what Mm -hmm. God was doing, moving and blowing among the people of the time. And so that's why I'm patient with the church. You know, I'm patient with the church. And my expectation is that the church and everyone in it will be patient with me. I think that's fair, Mm. right? I don't want anyone to go and say that I'm not orthodox or that I'm not faithful or that I'm not a believer, that I'm not loyal to the church, that I don't sustain whatever. Because people who make all those comments are saying something more about themselves than they're saying about me. Mm -hmm. I think this uh, really validates what we went over uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but those scriptures we read about being anxiously engaged in a good cause and just right, how right. that is basically the Lord asking us to stretch things. That is basically mm-hmm. him asking us to think outside of the box, to do more than what is required, to take what we have been given uh, through the truths of the gospel and use that to be engaged in good causes right. that the Lord hasn't expre- hasn't expressly or explicitly uh, told us to engage like in. Like the talents I feel, all over again. Yes, like the talents all over again. It's all coming back full circle. See, like, but anyway, I just wanted to make sure that people recognize that there are multiple uh, precedents for this, and one is recent as uh, what we learned last week in the Come Follow Me. Awesome. Well, that's all I have. Cool. And that's all I have. And we're at time anyway. So let's go ahead and wrap things up real quick. But before we do, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is featuring two new podcast features. The first, oh, hold up. I'm going to have to start this over again. Done. Lost my. Okay. Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. Mm -hmm. You can also find us on Facebook. And then you can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Yes, pretty much all the links to our socials or anything that we've done is available from our website. That is like our true hub. You can get to all of our social medias. You can find our transcripts there. You can find our merch store there. You can find a link to our link tree there. So if you're looking for anything related to us whatsoever, it is more than likely going to be on our website. In fact, the website is going to be your best bet in finding it. So yeah, don't forget, we do got that merch store. We do got transcripts. We do have uh, links to videos uh, that we've done or projects that we've done. Um, Derek's videos, we got a link to those 
on the website somewhere. Just click on that other tab. So if you want to watch any of those hour and a half or three hour long videos that Derek's been doing, those three part long things, they're ready and available from our website. Uh, we also got our glow page that's up if you want to uh, help us sustain the work of the show and improve it in various ways and improve our mission um, you can go to glow.fm slash beyond the block to make to make a contribution that's glow.fm slash beyond the block and anyone who contributes anything gets access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us including access to our collaborator facebook group where you can interact with us more directly you can provide feedback and ideas for the show you can access our notes and a lot more so if you got thrown if you got coins to throw our way that's a great way to do it otherwise you can just share some of our content and uh, request to be part of our community uh once you're done um, is there anything else we got to put the people on to, Derek? I don't think so. Don't think so. But things in the works, guys. Uh, we will keep you posted on what Derek and I are working on, in addition to uh, the podcast, obviously. But uh, yeah. thank you guys for tuning in today. Till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we uh, till we meet again. By the way, when this comes out, uh, oh, well, yeah, when most people are see this it, or listen to this, it's already going to be Pride Month. So happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month, yes.